Hey, listeners, before we start the show, two things. One, thank you for listening. I appreciate every single listener out there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Two, got to ask you a favor. We would like to better understand who is listening and how you're listening to this podcast and other NPR podcasts. To do that, to pick your brain, we're going to ask you to complete a survey. It is short. It is anonymous. The link for it is npr.org slash IBAM survey. It's all one word. IBAM is the acronym for It's Been a Minute, I-B-A-M, followed by survey, S-U-R-V-E-Y. All right, this survey takes no more than 10 minutes. It'll really help us out. The survey is npr.org slash IBAM survey. One word. Thank you. George Floyd was killed on May 25th, 2020. Since then, it seems everything has changed. Protests against police brutality have swept the nation and the globe. All kinds of statues are coming down. NASCAR banned Confederate flags. Aunt Jemima is gone. And one thing that's come out of all of this that has honestly surprised me, it's been this so-called media reckoning on race. For a few weeks now, journalists of color have been speaking out about what it's like to be in newsrooms where they are usually outnumbered. It's hard to say exactly what led to this debate over newsroom diversity and journalistic objectivity, but there have been some flashpoints. On May 29th of this year, a black CNN correspondent, Omar Jimenez, he and his team were arrested while covering the protests in Minneapolis. A white colleague reporting nearby was not. are watching our correspondent, Omar Jimenez, being arrested by state police. And at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, editors banned a black reporter from covering protest because in a tweet, she jokingly compared scenes of so-called looting to country music fans after a concert. I was told it violated our social media policy. With both these stories, a lot of journalists said, hey, look, can you not see these double standards? White journalists are not treated this way. But the thing that really kicked this reckoning into high gear It was when the New York Times published this op-ed from U.S. Senator Tom Cotton. His piece Wednesday titled, Send in the Troops, called for an overwhelming show of force. The op-ed came out on June 3rd, and it called for the military to partner with local law enforcement to crack down on all the protests. A, quote, overwhelming show of force to restore order. Black journalists at the Times thought the piece was a call for violence. And not just against protesters. The black journalists within the Times newsroom, you know, basically begin to tweet that publishing this op-ed puts black New York Times journalists in danger. That is Soraya Nadia McDonald. She is a culture writer at ESPN's The Undefeated. You're going to hear more from her in a minute. Anyway, this thing blew up and it led to a very big, messy and public fight within The New York Times. Soraya, like me, was surprised. My eyes got wide. I was just, like watching this and I was like, I mean, they're correct, but like, oh. Eventually, the head of the Times opinion section resigned. This kind of reckoning. In the last few weeks, it's been happening in newsrooms all across the country. And it's led to major internal debates, if not big staff shakeups at Bon Appetit and Complex and Condé Nast. The Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Refinery29, The Ringer, Variety, and even public radio stations and NPR. This week on It's Been a Minute, we're going to talk about it. The great media reckoning of 2020. Stay with us. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. Don't miss the national conversation with me, Jen White, every weekday on NPR's 1A. News, views, and insight for the relentlessly curious. A space for those willing to share what they know and ready to hear the other side of the story. Subscribe to 1A now and leave a review. Okay, let's begin. Before the interviews, I want to share my theory for why all of this exploded for journalists of color right now. It goes back a few years. So many of us went from covering the first black president to covering Donald Trump. And ever since Trump came down that escalator announcing his campaign back in 2015, when he denounced Mexicans as drug traffickers and rapists, when he would say that he would build a wall at the border and that Mexico would pay for it, those journalists were told to avoid using words like racist or lie to describe some of Trump's worst behavior. That kind of self-censorship, especially on race. For a lot of us, it became untenable after we had to cover the death of George Floyd and report on that video of a black man being choked to death for eight minutes. On top of that, we are now dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, which is laying bare racial inequities across this country. And quarantine has given a lot of us time to sit and think and notice what's going on in the world and in our lives and in our newsrooms. You have Black journalists and other journalists of color who think of themselves as truth seekers in the same way that their white colleagues do. Mm -hmm. But very often when they tell the truth about racism, when they tell the truth about white supremacy, they're labeled as activists because they have dared to bring their Blackness across the newsroom threshold. Soraya Nadia McDonald has been thinking a lot about race and the news. So I asked her, as a black journalist, in this moment, what does she want to see change? So I would say what I want is actual structural change within newsroom leadership. I do not want the equivalent of painting Black Lives Matter on a street in yellow letters, but in a newsroom. It's visible, but... That doesn't really solve anything when it comes to pay discrepancies between white male journalists and black female journalists who do the same job, have the same level of experience, and one is making $30,000 a year more than the other. Mm. The other thing is that you cannot have um, newsroom leadership that is completely made up of cisgender straight white men. (laughs) Mm. Or even cisgender straight white women, if we're being honest. Exactly, or even cisgender straight white women. Um, That power needs to be distributed more equitably. You know, the other thing that I want to see is I want to see us cover race honestly, Mm. right? Race isn't just something that black people experience or something that non-white people experience. It's something that everyone experiences. Mm. And so 
there needs to be a baseline of literacy, right? When it comes to how we talk about race within America, how it operates within American history, and how that informs our present, um, and what role uh, news media has played in that, right? We have to consider that uh, the last time that we had a pandemic, the 1918 flu pandemic, we need to recognize that the paper of record in Chicago, the Chicago Tribune, is basically scapegoating Black people who are fleeing wow. the American South. Basically saying, wow. oh, half a million darkies are basically invading Chicago. Uh, if that's objectivity, that's not the kind of objectivity that I want to participate in. Yeah, yeah. I want to get personal a little bit. Um, you ended up being quoted in a New York Times article about this reckoning, talking about how you didn't have a great time at the Washington Post. You've tweeted about your experience as a Black woman in newsrooms. What has this reckoning meant for you, and what have you been trying to get off your chest in this moment about your experience and in some of the newsrooms that we've been talking about? My hope for this reckoning um, is that there is not one more class of, you know, young, earnest 22-year-olds coming out of journalism school um, who basically have to go through this really damaging gauntlet where you're constantly sort of questioning yourself and your own worth. And, you know, I think there are a lot of really talented journalists who have been driven from the field because at some point they feel like they have to make a choice between their own mental health or being a journalist. And they choose yeah. self-preservation. And I cannot blame them. Um, and that is really a shame because think about the people that those journalists know. Think about the stories that they could have told. Think um, about the access they could have had. Think about the uh, access you, that they, they could have They can walk had. into certain spaces that their white colleagues cannot. Exactly. And, you know, one of the ways, and this is not the only way that this is important, but one of the ways that this is important is we need them to trust us mm. if our job is to tell their stories and to tell them yeah. accurately and to tell them yeah. fairly. And if people are, are always getting pushed out, the folks who might actually be able to empathize with them, who know where they're coming from, right? I, there's a quote from the late Gwen Ifill where she basically expresses that, you know, she's probably um, the only person who covered public housing who's actually lived in public housing. Mm. Mm. That, yeah. that is That's also a big deal. expertise, right? That is exactly. really valuable knowledge, so I just, I want us to be able to practice our profession with humanity. Yeah. And and also, it's like in this moment where it seems like more than ever before, at least in my lifetime, there is such a deficit of trust. Yes. Americans don't trust institutions. They don't trust journalism. They don't trust facts. We're still arguing about whether or not masks can prevent the spread of coronavirus. Like in this <laughs> environment... If newsrooms don't act and fix some of this stuff, mm -hmm. it's going to create more mistrust in the media. And these news outlets will become less relevant in a moment in which I would argue they are needed more than ever before. Yes. 
And you know, the thing is, is, and I've said this repeatedly, that American journalism does have a credibility crisis. The credibility crisis that we have, I think, actually bears a lot of similarities to our current sort of voter disenfranchisement problem. And I Mm. think in journalism, we have not spent enough time um, with the very same folks who are often disenfranchised when it comes to media coverage as well, right? And so Mm -hmm. when we think about the press and freedom of the press as an instrument of democracy, we have to think about enfranchising everyone. We have to think about making sure that they do find us credible. Mm-hmm. If folks, if they look at the newspaper or they look at a website or they listen to the radio and their mm-hmm. conclusion is that these entities are not telling the truth about them and their lives and how their lives are Or lived, not for them. Yeah. Or not for them. That's a credibility issue for us. Yeah, we have right? to fix it. We are failing them. <laughs> That means that we have to develop far better relationships with folks who have historically um, been shunned or shut out of this sort of media coverage are only allowed to participate in very limited ways. You know, I still very much believe in that adage that journalism exists to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Thanks again to Soraya Nadia McDonald. She's a culture writer for The Undefeated. And also this year, she was nominated for a Pulitzer. My, my. All right, I wanted to hear from other journalists of color about their newsroom experiences. And they wrote in. Here are a few. My name is Levi Sumagaisai. I'm a naturalized citizen who came to this country as a young child. I worked at a Bay Area newspaper for a long time and have fond memories of my time there. I had mostly white editors, and in fact, I've only had one non-white supervisor in my over two decades in journalism. My name is John Sepulvedo. I'm mixed. I have Mexican, Irish, indigenous, and black ancestry. I worked in public media for 15 years. There are tons of horror stories. There was the white woman editor who asked me if I liked dog fighting because she, quote, heard my people like dog fighting. There was another white woman editor who told me to smile more around the office because I, quote, have dark features, and those dark features scared herself and other white women around the office. One time, a headline I wrote for one of my own stories led to a newsroom-wide meeting, an emotional one, where a bunch of us had to persuade top editors to let us call the president's racism what it is. The most frustrating part was that I and others had to explain to our colleagues why our voices were important, and partly because they reflected the communities we covered. I could repeat like a thousand more stories like that, but at a point I realized that no matter what I did, no matter how good I was, no matter how hard I worked, I would always be seen as something that is not white. And my aha moment was to leave the industry. All right, time for a break. When we come back, we will hear from a Latina trailblazer who refused to leave the news business. 
Instead, she started her own media company to tell the stories that she wanted to tell. BRB. Hey, another reminder, asking y'all to fill out that survey for us, okay? It is anonymous, it is short, and the link for it is npr.org slash IBAM survey. All one word, IBAM survey. npr.org slash IBAM survey. Fill it out. I'll be really happy if you do. Thanks. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Sometimes food is more than just food. It's an integral part of the community. So this year, Discover is giving $5 million to support Black-owned restaurants to places like Rodney Scott's Barbecue in Charleston, Post Office Pies in Birmingham, Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, and hundreds more places in your local community all across the country. Learn how you can show your support at discover.com. Whenever you face a choice, it helps to think like an economist. And this week on Planet Money Summer School, we'll start off our course in economics with a workout for your brain. How to decide what something truly costs. Listen now to Planet Money from NPR. People still find it really interesting, Sam, when they're like, I'm like, no, no, I I was the first Latina in the newsroom at NPR ever to step foot who wasn't cleaning it. That was me, right? That, That was... That was this Latina. That is Maria Inahosa. She's had a long career in media, not just here at NPR, but also at CNN and PBS. In 2010, she founded her own company, Futuro Media. And she has a memoir. It's called Once I Was You. That comes out in September. But most of you probably know Maria as the host of a very long-running public radio show turned podcast. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Latino USA has been around since the early 90s. It is distributed by NPR, which is why you hear NPR in the credits. But that will be changing. Latino USA is moving to PRX as our distributor. It means nothing's going to change for you, our listener, except that our audience is going to get way, way, way bigger. We're very excited. That announcement might have been confusing for some of you listeners, but don't worry. Like she said, you'll still be able to hear the show. But to journalists of color, especially in public radio, that move meant that NPR was losing a hugely influential show dedicated to covering Latino stories in the U.S. And from its founding, NPR has been, well, bad on race. More than 70% of NPR's newsroom is white. And of the sources you hear on NPR's air... Those voices, they are more than 80% white. People of color who work in public media, we have been saying for years, fix this, including Maria Inahosa. We're asking the question, are you listening? Are you hearing? And that is Mm -hmm. already a, a power dynamic that is wrong. This notion is the assumption that they, they, the they, will always have the power. I asked Maria what Latino USA leaving NPR means for this network. But first, I asked her about blazing her own trails. One could see your path to being a woman of color who found her own company as a shining success. But one could also see your path as proving that the conventional spaces in media can't accommodate a voice like you the way they should. You know, like... I'm so proud of what you're doing, but also the fact that you have to make your own production company shows that the NPRs and the PBSs and the CNNs in many ways don't get it. 
and can't can't help people like you tell the stories that you need to tell. Yeah, um, I, I was I yeah, was I thinking know. about that as I was thinking about our interview, Sam, because you know my husband um, calls me a, a guerrera, a warrior. And then as I was thinking about our conversation, Sam, I was like, well, that's great. I like that. But you know what? I don't want journalists of color to have to be warriors that, in that. order to be able to work as to journalists. To just have a job. Yeah, to yeah. be able to work as journalists of conscience who can bring their entire selves into the newsroom, who are going to be seen, who are going to not only be seen and heard, but actually put into positions of power to be the ones who are listening and making the decisions about, yeah, we want that story on the front page. And the headline is going to say that exactly. Yeah. I want you, you know, everyone has been, you've seen it. Everyone's been going to Twitter, sharing their reckoning story. The slight, the not getting that promotion, the being told you can't do this or do that. Give me one of your reckoning stories from your career. When I... When I come to this country, I'm born in Mexico. My whole family's born in Mexico. We're raised on the south side of Chicago, you know, 60s and 70s. But as Mexican immigrants, um, we also understood the essentialness of journalism and American independent journalism. And so my father was Mm -hmm. watching Meet the Press every Sunday, and we were watching the Today Show, and we watched 60 Minutes. And because of the fact that it was so American in holding people accountable, and I was like, that's what journalism is. So long story short is many years later, actually a decade ago, I go to 60 Minutes when I'm out of work and needing a job, actually. Mm. And (laughs) they basically are like, look, can you you come back and talk to us when one of the old white guys gets sick or dies? Really? And I said, and I just remember like... (gasps) Like, am I supposed to laugh? Is that funny? Is that a joke? Are you being serious? And I, as we do in the media, as people of color, because we're really good at laughing things off and mm-hmm. doing the banter and like, oh, oh, oh yeah, you know, like the banter, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the we're so smart. Racism you know, be funny. Of color. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Racism be funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh-huh. And I got into the subway at 59th Street up mm-hmm. to my apartment in Harlem and I cried on the yeah. A train. Yeah. And I was just like, but I am not, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to let this take me down. Yeah. And that was the moment that I decided to create Futuro Media, which and the rest then, is history. <laughs> then takes over Latino USA. Yeah. And expands Latino USA, grows the show, and Latino USA's audience, 27 years in, yeah. is in a continual upward trajectory. You love to see it. So I want to ask more about what needs to happen. We are in this moment now where so many journalists are coming forward with their stories. But it's still unclear what newsroom leaders will actually do to fix this stuff. You have been on all sides of media, you know, for-profit, non-profit. Give me like a checklist of like the big three or four things that mass media should do right now to effectively respond to the issues raised in this reckoning. I I feel like this is a moment to be having that difficult conversation, which is pushing this reckoning that we're talking about to another level. Mm. I'm going to give you an example, Sam. It brings me yeah. no joy. It brings me no joy to have to ask white men in senior editorial positions how they consider my role as a Mexican immigrant woman journalist mm. in relation to a president who insults every single one of those things that I am. Yeah. 
and 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 bases a lot of that on his white supremacy, which is a very challenging word to even use in our newsrooms, right? But yeah, I don't feel comfortable saying it. I don't. I want you to feel uncomfortable having to answer that question. Yeah, because his yeah. white supremacy does not impact you in the way it impacts me. And I am a mm. journalist just, just like you. I am an equal journalist just like you. So now you help me to figure out how I'm going to handle that because that that impacts our my quote-unquote objectivity. You have to be able to recognize that you do not have an ownership of objectivity or an ownership of the media yeah. or an ownership yeah. of public media or it's not yours to share. Yeah. Did any of the issues we've discussed – about race and diversity and unfair situations that journalists of color have to deal with in this industry. Did those factor into your business decision to leave NPR for PRX? Look, I've had, you know, NPR is my family. Um, if NPR calls, I'm going to say yes. When you call, I was like, absolutely. NPR, Sam, okay. he's my family. You know, we've hung yeah, out once, but he's that. like, you yeah. know, he's my brother because we're tied to <laughs> yeah. NPR. So NPR is my family, mi familia. It was my first job. But, you know, I started a company and I have a team of very savvy business and media executives and journalists. And when they said, Look, do we have an opportunity here in a in a competitive marketplace? Um, a you know somebody PRX who wants to really go big. Yeah, I will say you know there are all of these underground email channels and Slack channels and discussion boards where journalists of color are coming together to talk about all these issues. And there's been a lot of chatter about your show oh leaving my God. NPR. Are you kidding me? And what me? it says about NPR. Yeah. Why, it, it, dude, it's... why am I so disconnected? Oh my God. Like I thought <laughs> like I thought I was like connected because I'm on Twitter and I got a fan. Well, oh, yeah. No. And what folks have been saying, people who love your show. Oh my goodness. They're they're saying, well, this speaks to the larger problems NPR has always had with content made for people of color. They don't market it enough. They don't support it enough. You'll have these program directors at various stations put a show like yours on at not great hours. This is the stuff that people are saying. Do you, th- I mean, like, to the extent that you can elaborate on it, you know, did you feel like NPR neglected or didn't promote enough your type of show? So Because of these larger issues at play with the race and diversity in a space like NPR. You know, again, <laughs> Latino USA right now is growing an audience at kind of extraordinary numbers. I think we're oh, totally. one, of, one of the few public radio programs or previously distributed by NPR that is growing an audience at these numbers. And so the fact that we made this decision says everything about what NPR kind of thinks about Latino USA. Mm. Um, now, having said that, I don't know. You know, I don't know the internal finances at NPR. Maybe NPR is 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 really facing a, a real financial challenge that I'm not privy to. And so, you know, but, but when you're thinking about um, a show that has this kind of audience commitment, um, mm-hmm. there was a point um, not long ago when uh, one of your colleagues called me up, actually, uh, she works in, she's a Latina colleague uh, at NPR in mm-hmm. the newsroom. And she called me up and she said, do you think that Latino USA has been this incredibly successful because of NPR or despite NPR? 
Mm. And no one had asked me that. And I kind of went like, ooh. And I said, well, actually, despite, despite NPR. Do you think, you know, because there are a lot of shows not produced by NPR, but distributed by NPR. Do you think other shows like that in your same boat that were hosted by white people or felt to maybe NPR leadership more mainstream, do you think they got more support than your show did, pound for pound? Yeah. How does that make you feel? Like I said, <laughs> that's why I'm like, I'm like oh, sweetie, <laughs> know, but know, see, yeah. I've been, see, I've been feeling this for a long time, my love. <laughs> it's not new. So, Give me a word for the emotion. Um, well, right now, I'm glad that I'm with a, a partnership with PRX where that's not going to, you know, that's not on the table. So I'm like, I'm mm. looking to the future. That's why I'm like, yeah, um, I'm all about like, it's all about the dodge. This morning, my boxing teacher, you know, was making us do the weave, the weave, the console, which, by the way, is really, really hard. And mm-hmm. that's just how I feel as a journalist of color and a survivor and a Mexican immigrant woman in this. Like, it's always like, whoo, whoo, okay, whoo. And so... Um, that stuff that you're saying, like, how does it make me, um, that's rolled off me a long time ago. And mm. it is a central part of what has moved me as a journalist, as a woman of yeah. color in this country, is that. Is yeah. like, oh, you're going to try to silence me or tell me that I'm not objective or tell me that I have an agenda or tell me that it's not going to be successful or tell me, hmm, okay, I might go home and cry. But I'm not going to give up. Thanks again to Maria Inahosa. She's the host of Latino USA. We asked NPR for a response to what Maria told us, and they gave us this statement. We have the highest respect and admiration for the Latino USA team and for Maria Inahosa. We are proud that Latino USA originated at NPR member station KUT and that since 1994, NPR has been the program's national distribution partner. Today, hundreds of NPR member stations bring the show to their listening communities. We are grateful to Maria and her team, who have produced a consistently wonderful show and nurtured journalists who have gone on to work all over the public radio system. We are glad public radio listeners will continue to hear Latino USA on their public radio stations across the nation. All right, now we're going to have a chat with someone who just began working with NPR, Kelly McBride, NPR's newest public editor. I wanted to talk with her about one particular part of this entire debate, the way in which we've been taught as journalists to do our jobs that at a most fundamental level leads to systemically racist outcomes. I am talking specifically about the idea of journalistic objectivity, this idea that reporters only report the facts, they keep themselves out of the story, and they eliminate all bias in their coverage. A lot of folks say, well, that only works if you're a man, and straight, and white. I wanted to find out why our journalism is so entrenched in objectivity, and whether or not this standard is fair. So I went to one of the top journalism ethics experts in the country. I am the senior vice president at the Pointer Institute. I am the chair of the Craig Newmark Center for Ethics and Leadership at the Pointer Institute. And I am also the public editor for NPR. That is Kelly McBride. Kelly has advised newsrooms about difficult journalism ethics problems for years. So it made sense to begin by asking Kelly for her definition of objectivity 
in journalism. It really means that you will objectively pursue the facts in order to determine the truth. And there's all sorts of things that go into that, right? Like there's how you frame the story, how you identify who you're going to interview. And then really important is who else is involved in the story. So who edits it? Because that the, the safety nets that are created in newsrooms are meant to help an individual program against her own biases. Now, the problem is if all the safety nets have the same biases, then that doesn't happen, right? And that's that's exactly yeah. what's been happening. Yeah. Well, and then also objectivity has come to mean certain different things for different journalists. There are some journalists who say, well, objectivity means that you have to pretend that kind of you don't exist. And you have to just simply say what these powerful people are saying or doing. You don't provide context. You don't provide analysis. It's a kind of totally taking yourself all the way out of it to the point where you won't even tell people if you vote or not. And I think this is the thing for me. Like, there are so many different interpretations of what objectivity means. Yeah, you know, that's actually kind of a conflation of two different principles in journalism. So one is the principle of objectivity and this idea that that we are pursuing the truth in spite of our own biases and that that we actually promise swear to God that we're going to get it right because we have all these safeguards in place, even though they've failed numerous times in the past. But the other thing is, is that in American journalism in particular, it was built on this business principle of aggregating a politically diverse audience and then selling that audience to advertisers. So in in Europe, mm. you see much more... Um, you see much more of the journalism coming through a political lens because that's just how the business model grew up over there. But over here, especially as um, in different markets, you went from multiple newspapers to a single newspaper, there was this motive that was really a business motive that you would bring in the entire political spectrum. And if you were going to do that, you needed to convince that audience that you in the newsroom didn't have any particular biases. It is refreshing to hear you as a leader in the industry acknowledge that some of this is about the principles and bedrocks of our journalism and some of it's about business. And at the end of the day, for whatever reason, we have ended up with a definition of objectivity that is as much about business as it is about telling the truth. And I think what frustrates so many journalists, so many younger journalists, so many journalists of color or women or queer journalists, is that newsroom leaders are resistant to acknowledge that. I read NPR's social media policy, and it's couched in terms of ethics and morality and ideals of objectivity. But I also know that part of it is the bottom line is I should not do anything as a public-facing person at NPR that would possibly damage NPR's revenue streams. And... I'm mad that they don't, just don't say that. Yeah, but they don't mean to say that. They don't, I mean, that's the thing is they don't, they really do believe. And I actually believe also that there is 
that there is a line somewhere that we shouldn't cross. And maybe it is way up the continuum on just if you're a political reporter, you can't tell people who you're voting for. Maybe the line is all the way over there, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, imagine that like if Mm -hmm. you were a political reporter and you were covering Trump's campaign and you were like, yeah, I'm voting for Biden though. I was that guy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah 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 but did you tell people out loud i didn't tell folks who i was voting for in 2016 and i wouldn't but i think it's those are the ones where i think everyone can agree but there's 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 other things like how much of me do i bring to a story when i'm covering police violence against black men am i allowed to just say that's racist because I know what racism is because I've experienced it. Trust me and don't make me say racially tinged or flambéed, you know, like those. And that's where it gets murkier. Well, you know, you know where I first experienced this. Yeah. So when gay marriage was um, was a hot, hot issue, right? There were different cities or states that were making gay marriage legal. The Supreme Court hadn't yet decided. In San Francisco, the mayor of San Francisco um, made it legal. And a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle on a Saturday um, after weeks of covering it, the city hall reporter went down and got a marriage license. And she was taken off the mm. beat. Wow. And as an, as an ethicist, right, as a journalism ethicist, I was like, wait a second. That can't be right, right? That feels off. Because she was yeah. exercising in San Francisco what was a legal right. You don't, mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't tell people who'd been divorced that they couldn't cover this issue because they'd, you know, somehow defiled the sanctity of marriage by getting divorced. So that was, that was where yeah. I realized that you cannot penalize people for who they are. That's not fair. Well, yeah, because you end up with the only people that are untainted enough to do all the work are people who are only straight, are people who are only men, are people who have only gone to college and had a, a certain pedigree, people who are – and, and th- that's the problem. Like, well, and they so, all have a set of biases too, right? It's just that we don't well, see Well, that's it. the thing. But these leaders aren't seeing those yeah. because they look just like them often. Mm-hmm. I think now what is required – to speak to the serious systemic issues being raised in this reckoning is going to have to be an acknowledgement that the movement toward righting these wrongs, it's going to be in some ways painful and you should do it anyway. Yeah. From your conversations with newsroom leaders across the country, do you think they're ready to even accept that idea that this might hurt, that it might not just be a statement and everyone shakes hands and says, sure, good. No, no. I mean, nobody wants to voluntarily sign up for something painful. Yeah. You do it because you know that what comes on the other side is worth it. There's individuals in every single newsroom who are part of the problem. And somebody has to tell those people that if they want to keep their jobs, they have to stop being part of the problem. And that means that they're either going to have to be quiet or they're going to have to change. Mm-hmm. Or leave. Right. Or just leave. Well, that's, I mean, if they want to keep their job, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I've seen people who are these problem people. I've, I don't think I've ever seen any of them actually change. Mm. But I've seen some of them learn to be quiet and let other people lead. Mm-hmm. 
And then they actually yeah. become the beneficiary of what comes after. Yeah. Well, and then I think also so many lessons of Me Too, I think, are applicable to this media reckoning. Me Too kind of worked because a lot of folks were just literally canceled and they had to go. They were shamed. They were fired. And we said, you can't be here anymore. And it was painful for them and probably weird for a lot of folks that liked them and loved them. But, like, sometimes it's just that. Yeah. My So my last question for you, back to these two ideals that butt heads, this idea of objectivity, but also this business ideal of needing to be somewhat neutral to appeal to a large audience and reworking and probably reassessing what objectivity means in a newsroom. What advice would you give to newsroom leaders writing up that next ethics guideline for their journalist about quote-unquote objectivity? post-reckoning. Yeah, so this is where I'm supposed to come through with something really profound. And <laughs> I mean, I I am I am humble enough to say that I don't have the answer yet. But I'm also arrogant enough to say that I believe after working through lots of really really hard ethics problems with newsrooms that I think we are going to find the answer. And I think it's going to start by recognizing that there is a difference between revealing political bias and revealing lived experience. And we need to start there mm. and say your lived experience should not count as political bias. Thanks again to Kelly McBride for joining us. And thanks to everyone who, over the last week or so, shared some very, very personal stories about life as a person of color in the newsroom. I heard from some colleagues as well. And one thing one of those colleagues told me about all of this, she said, so much of this work is convincing journalists who think they've been doing it right for so long that maybe, in some ways, they've been doing it wrong. And then she said to me this phrase that really stuck with me. She said... How do you argue with the fish about the water they're swimming in? I don't know just yet how to do that. It seems pretty difficult. It seems frustrating. But I do think if there is any time to start talking about the water, it's now. Listeners, reach out to the show whenever you want. We're at samsanders at npr.org. This episode was produced by Andrea Gutierrez with help from Anjali Sastry. It was edited by Jordana Hokeman. Listeners, we're back on Friday. Stay safe and stay healthy until then. All right. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. <laughs>